0: Hi, I'm Awista Yub, Director of the Fellows program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 10 new Class of 2021 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Jennifer Daskell, a Class of 2021 ASU Future Security Fellow. Jennifer is a professor and faculty director of the Technology, Law, and Security Program at American University, Washington College of Law. Her current book project, The Right Way to Track and Censor, squarely confronts the multiplicity of harms being perpetuated online, the risks of quick fixes, and the need for affirmative and rights-respecting means of addressing them. Formally, Jennifer was Counsel to the Assistant Attorney General at the National Security Division at the Department of Justice, and before that, Senior Counterterrorism Counsel at Human Rights Watch. Jennifer, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. Thank you
1: so much. I'm. Absolutely delighted to be part of this program.
0: So Jennifer, can you just tell us a little bit more about your project and help frame that for us?
1: Sure. As you mentioned, it's a book project and it's called The Right Way to Track and Censor. And the project stems from a recognition that it was just really a decade ago that Secretary of State Hillary Clinton gave her internet freedom speech at the museum where she proclaimed the promises of a free and open internet that would, among other things, lift up the oppressed and protect dissidents and contrasted that with authoritarian modes of control and predicted that those modes of control were associated with poor economic growth and decline. And what we've learned the hard way over the last decade is that both of those promises turned out to be faulty in key ways that free and open or at least unfettered and open is not free and the multiplicity of harms that are being perpetuated online are almost too numerous to count from violent extremism to hate speech to fraud to disinformation to misinformation election interference child sexual exploitation just to name a small number of many and we've also seen that authoritarian regimes replete with very strong tools of surveillance and censorship have continued to grow and flourish economically. And so this book stems from a sense of, of what I think of as a real urgency about this problem that the West and a number of other countries that have proclaimed free and open are increasingly adopting, adapting tools that were once associated with authoritarian control in an effort to, a legitimate and important effort to stem some of the harms that are being perpetuated online. But this is happening without a real clear vision about the kind of internet and the kind of digitally connected society that we want to live in. And so part of the goal or the real goal of this project is to document some of the trends And to put forward and spark a discussion about how we create an affirmative, attractive, rights-respecting system of internet governance that also addresses the real harms that are being perpetuated online.
0: According, you know, if all goes according to plan, this will be your first book project. But it's one that really builds on your writing to date, particularly on this topic. So, can you tell me a little bit more about just the breadth and depth of the research you've done on this topic to date, and how that has influenced your thinking when it comes to the narrative?
1: Right. So, so that's right. This is my first book project, and I'm incredibly excited and slightly daunted by that. Um, it builds on a lot of academic work and also some more popular kind of op-ed writing that I've done on a range of these topics. So a recent um, academic piece was looking at, it's called Speech Across Borders, and it looks at the ways in which courts around the world have attempted to dictate what is and is not permitted speech online and to impose a whole host of requirements on companies to monitor, look for, take down, address, unwanted speech, and how there are a variety of perspectives on what is and is not protected speech and how those differences are managed across borders. I've written, um, done some writing on Singapore's fake news law, on efforts to respond to foreign election interference by big tech and a range of other projects looking at censorship and surveillance across the globe. Um, As I said, a lot of this work I've done in more of an academic capacity. And what I'm really excited to do in this project is to write a book in a way that's not purely academic book, but reaches a much broader audience. And as I said before, sparks a broader conversation about some of these issues. These, These are conversations that are obviously ongoing at least to contribute and to further spark this conversation.
0: And as you mentioned earlier, there's certainly an urgency in this moment to really address this conversation. And so can you speak to the significance of this moment, particularly to when it comes to your book project, what are you hoping to contribute to the conversations?
1: I think it's so easy for us to forget how new all of this is. Um, you know, it was really just thirteen years ago that iPhones even came to being, we're all kind of assume that it's hard to even imagine a world where we don't have these devices with us at all times. It's, you know, we look at kind of the growth of cloud computing, the exponential growth of cloud computing over the last few years, the interconnectedness has emerged and as increasing at just really an exponential rate. And so all of these issues are really new and up for grabs and so my sense is that there is both a real opportunity and a real need to think through how we respond to the range of harms online, how we use technology responsibly, and how we create the kind of society that we want to live in and that we want to leave for our children and our grandchildren and my hope is 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 that you know by writing this book, I reach new constituents, new readers who um, will contribute to and, and think through these challenges. There's not, you know, there's not unfortunately any easy answer to all of this, so it really requires widespread discussion, debate, and thought, I think, to achieve the vision that we want in the future and to avoid the rapid slide down and almost the unthinking slide down what I call the authoritarian rabbit hole. And just to give one quick example, so many people will probably remember that in 2011, Egypt shut down the internet in response to the protests there. And there was a huge outcry. This was a really big deal. And you know it made frontline news, headline news, and people were really concerned and upset about that. And last year, in India alone, the world's largest democracy, it was shut down over a hundred times. And obviously there's some people that are tracking this and are concerned about it, but it doesn't make headline news anymore. It's just accepted. And so, you know, that's the kind of slide and acceptance that I think we want to start putting some brakes on and thinking through how we design a system that is affirmative and attractive, both for rights respecting reasons and also for economic reasons as well.
0: So one point that you made in your application uh, that you submitted for the fellowship was that the internet freedom agenda has always been quote unquote somewhat mythical. So can you talk more about the history of that agenda and what also makes it mythical in your perspective?
1: So it's mythical in the sense that the internet was never fully free. There's always been subject to controls and the technology itself dictates how information is shared and who has access to it. And so early on, there was kind of this utopian dream of an internet community that would be supranational, that people would connect in virtual space in ways that were removed from the constraints of national governments and national laws, and that you would achieve this kind of new global harmony through the virtual worlds. It became very clear very early on that that wasn't the reality. People were not as pure and good online as one would hope, that all the nastiness that happens in the real world also happens in the online world and in some ways is actually exacerbated in the online world because of a range of things, including anonymity, by which people can act. Um, and secondly, you had governments recognize the power um, both economically and geopolitically of this tool and try to put controls on the online space in ways that made it impossible for there to be this kind of supra-national existence. And so very early on, that kind of utopian dream turned out to not be the reality. And over time, we've seen those trends increase, both in terms of national governments attempting to put controls on the internet and to use the internet as tools of surveillance and censorship and tracking and control. And also, we've seen an increase in the kinds of Harms that are being perpetuated online as well.
0: So it's very clear that this is both an incredibly dynamic project, um, but also complex in many reasons, for many reasons too. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the challenges that you anticipate for this project, particularly as you're disseminating complex information to. A broad audience that includes policymakers and also the general public in terms of getting them up to speed with the conversations that are somewhat technical and to some degree with this with this topic, but also global. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: It is a challenging project and it's challenging for a number of reasons. I mean, one, just the, the scope of potential topics is almost infinite. Obviously, it's not infinite, but it's huge. And so making decisions about what to include and what to not what not to include is in and itself hugely challenging. Another challenge is telling the story in a way that's compelling. As I said, I really want to reach the general public and policymakers and write this book in a way that's compelling to general readers and is not overly technical or overly legal or overly um, has too many acronyms in it. And so figuring out how to both tell a story that requires some discussion of law and policy and technology and to do so in a way that has a real narrative arc I think is is probably the biggest challenge I have in thinking through this project.
0: I know initially when you submitted your application the goal was also to travel to get the global perspective on this issue. So can you talk more about how countries are handling this? You know, are there models that work well in terms of the right way to do this. Um, and if so, can you elaborate on that? But also can you discuss the countries that you hope to write about and why those countries?
1: You know, unfortunately there's no there's no single model of this country has has gotten it right and this area has the monopoly on how to do this right. I think in some ways there's more examples of what not to do right now. And so I mean, obviously some of the excessive surveillance regimes that, have, that are put in place and implemented in China are an obvious example. Um, but as I mentioned before, Singapore's fake news law, which is has been exported to other countries in the region. Some of the European court cases that limit political speech in ways that certainly run afoul of First Amendment principles in the United States and um, try to export those standards around the world in terms of the implementation, that raises a a set of concerns. Um, I think some of the promising developments um, are not necessarily driven by governments, but to some extent driven by the technology itself. So I think we're starting to see a lot more companies and entities take seriously what many people call privacy by design, so designing technology that is privacy protective um, and security protective because the two go hand in hand. I think some of those developments are highly encouraging. We're starting to see, at least in the United States, um, states take privacy concerns more seriously um, in some of the state-based laws that have been passed and that may percolate up to the federal level. So, unfortunately, I don't think there is a single model that is is the model to look at, but there's different aspects of what some governments are doing and perhaps more concerning what some governments are doing that we should be wary of that are the primary focus of this project.
0: So with the book project, you also hope to address, um, and as you put it, the unintended consequences of actions taken in the wake of very legitimate concerns regarding harms online. So what actions and consequences are you specifically referring to, and what lessons have we learned from them?
1: Right. So there's, there's many, many, many. Um, I will just name one that kind of comes to mind right now, which is um, in the wake of foreign election interference, Facebook adopted a new ad authorization policy. And pursuant to this ad authorization policy, anyone who wanted to buy a political ad has to authenticate where they're from, and they have to produce an ID from the location from which they're advertising. And that sounds fine in theory. It's an attempt to protect against foreign interference in elections. But there's a couple of problems that arise. First, the definition of political ads is not just what one might think of, which is advocating for or against a particular candidate, but it's all kinds of issue-based advocacy. It's support a refugee group, or let's think about the consequences of this environmental regulation, which has not just national consequences, but potentially international consequences. And so it's a bordering of the internet with respect to who can speak on issues of importance and saying only Americans can speak in America or only French people can speak in France. And that, I think, is certainly runs very contrary to the early promises of the interconnected internet and I also think it creates if that kind of approach were adopted more broadly it would create a certain myopia in the conversation. Um, In the EU elections it caused a huge problem because of the the Schengen system people move obviously across borders in Europe or pre-COVID they did with regularity and um, the rules meant that uh, somebody running um, from France could only advertise in France, even though a significant portion of the potential voters may be kind of scattered through various parts of Europe. And it caused a lot of consternation and concern there. So that's just one small example, but it highlights the ways in which kind of easy fixes sometimes create other unintended consequences.
0: So Jennifer, you've been affiliated with New America, both as a scholar and residence with the cybersecurity initiative, and most recently with the free speech project with New America's Future Tense program and Slate. So can you also just talk a little bit more about that initiative? It's a pretty unique initiative, uh, both in the partnership with New America, with Slate, with ASU's Future Tense program, as well as with American University. So it's a pretty dynamic project. So I'd love to just hear more about the collaboration there.
1: So it's it's a it's a fantastic, really fun collaboration between the Tech Law and Security Program at American University that I help run, and also Slate, Future Tense, and New America. Um, and we have since February 2020 curated on Slate, on Future Tense, a range of different articles and discussions about speech online and the future of communications online and the efforts to respond to harmful content, whole host of issues both in the United States and globally. And we coupled that, initially we were going to be doing a series of online events, I mean sorry, a series of in-person events over the course of this year. We launched in February with a really fantastic program that featured um, Anne-Marie Slaughter, And the president of American University, Sylvia Burwell, along with a panel of historians talking about responses to propaganda over time. And that was going to be followed up with a series of other events. Those have moved virtually along with so many other things in the last several months. And we've done a series of really interesting webinars on disinformation and misinformation online on political ads, the response to political ads online, on how we deal with gatekeepers, what's the role of the gatekeeper in, in responding to harmful speech online, um, debates about what's known as Section 230 in the Communications Decency Act in the United States, which has been in the news um, a lot lately and protects internet companies from liability for the speech that their users post or put online. Um, And so really robust, exciting project that has allowed a wide diversity of voices and speakers and writers to participate and engage on these issues. Um, We're also launching a new project this fall on policing and technology, um, kind of the same format, but looking at the ways in which Technology can help or will hurt efforts to reform, restructure, or potentially abolish the police.
0: So as you know, this is a very challenging time for many people around the world, both with the pandemic and also as we address uh, these conversations, like you just said, when it comes to policing and systematic racism. But what gives you hope right now?
1: I'm hopeful that so... Many people in the United States and around the world seem really engaged both on questions of future of technology, on racism, on policing, on speech online. And I'm also hopeful as hard and as difficult as everything has been with respect to the COVID crisis. One of the really kind of interesting and unexpected developments from my perspective has been the degree to which tech companies, which are often so maligned, have attempted to use technology in productive ways that also incorporate from the very beginning core principles of privacy. And I think as that becomes kind of the gold standard, it provides an opportunity to create an alternative to systems that make surveillance the kind of overriding objective and provides an alternative both ideologically and economically on which others beyond those that are kind of pursuing the surveillance approach that can pursue and compete on and I think that's a reason for optimism as well.
0: And my final question, where do you hope to be a year from now with your project?
1: Hopefully I will have a manuscript and I will be working on edits in a year from now.
0: Well, we look forward to supporting you this year. And thank you again for your time today, Jennifer. Thank
1: you for listening to this interview.
0: If you enjoy this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2021.